your Bibles with me, if you would, to Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter four. We will begin this morning by reading but one verse, Second Samuel chapter four. We will be continuing our study on the life of David. This morning, the subject's title is The Fetching of Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame on his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. I don't know what's going on in your heart, your mind, your soul this day. I suspect there are some here who are going through times of trial, times of difficulty of one sort or another. Perhaps it is the pain or hurt of one of those thorns in the flesh that seem to come our way from time to time. But one thing about pain is that there are times that things happen to us that, at least for a little while, cause us to forget our pain. I remember when I shattered my wrist back there a few years ago and went into the emergency room to have it set, and they looked at it and said, no, there's no way we can set it. They're going to have to do surgery on it. And my wrist was all swelled up, and I knew it was broken because my hand was not attached to my arm like it used to be. The dead giveaway that something's real wrong. Oh, it hurt. Oh, it was swollen. And I remember the nurse came in to give me a shot, some sort of pain medication. And, and uh, she said, which arm is it? And I said, well, it's this one over here. And she said, well, I'll give, you a, uh, I'll give it to you in that arm because you'll never know it got sore. In other words, the pain from the wrist was going to be so much that you wouldn't even know about the soreness of the arm from the shot. It would mask that pain. Well, there's a sense in which sometimes things that cause us to rejoice are also things that cause us for a short period of time to forget the hurt that we're experiencing and the pain for the moment. Well, this morning I trust that this might be that kind of message. I trust that I will probably not say anything to you that you have not heard before. But I just want to remind you this morning as we sort of have a little celebration here of the great grace of God that has come to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I believe the episode in David's life involving Mephibosheth is probably the most touching of all the events that surround that very unusual life. We might ask the question, why was this even recorded? It is a very small detail in the life of David. It certainly had no major impact on the course of his kingdom. But certainly it is quite crucial to our understanding, first of all, of the heart of David. And secondly, in furnishing to you and I a most wondrous, vivid illustration of the grace that comes to us in salvation. The last part of 1 Samuel, in chapter 31, in verse 7. We're reminded that after the defeat of the army of Israel on Mount Geboa by the Philistines, 
the battle in which Saul and three of his sons were slain, that the Philistines then drove right straight into the heartland of the nation of Israel. The army was defeated, was fleeing before them, and they drove straight east right up the Jezreel Valley all the way up to the city of Bethshan, which was a city situated on the banks of the Jordan River. And the Israelites who had lived in those villages and cities up the Jezreel Valley fled, abandoned their homes, abandoned their cities, and fled across the Jordan River over to the east side of the Jordan into the area that is known biblically as Gilead. You can imagine the panic if we were to have an invasion, let's say from the south, and our army goes down to stand between us and the invader, and then the news comes that our army has been routed, and the invading army is marching in our direction, looting, raping, pillaging, wherever they go. Can you imagine the panic that would come over the city of Memphis, over each one of our lives, as we would flee for our lives and not even give thought? Whatever we could carry on our back, that's about it. We would just get out of there. And so we find that there would be a general panic that would ensue, and we're given some insight into what went on into Saul's family's home. Of course, of all the people the Philistines would have liked to have got their hands on would have been the descendants of Saul. We find that the household servants, when they hear the tidings from Jezreel of the death of Saul, the death of Jonathan, and two other of Saul's sons, that panic ensues. And they begin to grab anything and everything and certainly grab the children. And they're rushing out to try to get themselves across the Jordan over into Gilead. And we're informed here that a nurse grabs this young five-year-old son of Jonathan. And in her haste, something happens. Perhaps she failed herself. Perhaps she dropped him. Perhaps he stumbled. But that he fell. And he became crippled. He was lame on his feet from that day on. 2 Samuel chapter 8 relates to us the military situation of David at this time. What we learn from 2 Samuel chapter 8 is that one by one, David and the army of Israel began to subdue their neighbors. First, it was the Philistines down to the southwest, about to Jerusalem, about where Tunica is to us. He subdued the land of the Philistines. They became tributary to David, paying him tribute. They, uh, he took some of their cities, some of their lands. They had been, of course, the perennial enemy of Israel. But now they are subdued. Then he had turned his attention over to the other side of the Dead Sea, over to the area of Moab, over to the area of the Ammonites, and he subdues them. Then he turns to the north, way up to a, a, an area called Zobah, way up on the Euphrates River, and he defeats their army. And because they were allies with the Syrians, the Syrians send their army to the aid of Zobah, and in the battle, the Syrians are defeated. And then he turns his attention down in the other direction to the southeast and takes the land of Edom, and they become his tributary. So what we have related in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is one by one, all of these nations that reigned the nation of Israel, 
as in our case, the Canadas, the Mexicos, the Cubas, and so forth, they all fall under the dominion of David's kingdom. He brings them all as tributary vassal states, more or less, under the reign of his kingdom. And so what we find then is for the first time in a long time, Israel has rest from her enemies. And it seems that whenever you finally get to the point where you can sort of Take a deep breath. This is a lot of battles that's related in Second Samuel chapter 8. When finally you get to the point that you can sort of step back and say, now we've got buffer states around us to shield us from the invading armies. Now the nation of Israel is firmly under my rule, David might say. Now it's time to take care of some unfinished business. In Second Samuel chapter 9, David asks a question in verse 1. Is there yet any who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He begins to inquire, is there anyone left alive of Saul's house? King Saul, of course, and his armies had sought David. David had been a fugitive for many years, fleeing before Saul and his army, and yet there was always that love for Saul. There was that covenant that he and Jonathan had made out there in the woods, that if anything happened to either of the other of them, they would look after the descendants of the other. And so David begins to inquire, is there anyone left? Now, if you had been a servant in the court of David... I suspect that you, though David says, I wish to show them kindness for Jonathan's sake, you might really seriously question the king's intentions. You might say, I'm sure he wants to show them something, probably the business end of a sword. Because you see, in that age, in that day, it was standard operating procedure. When one family, one dynasty took the kingdom from another dynasty, as has happened in this case, where the family, the line of David, is supplanting the line of Saul. The first item on the agenda, usually, was to round up all the remaining male descendants of that previous king and cut their heads off. Now, if you doubt that supposition, just read a little later in the chronology of the kingdom of Israel, especially the northern kingdom after Israel and Judah divided, and you'll see that as one family would take the throne from another family, that was the first thing they did was round up all the remaining male relatives and put them to death. You'll even find that in Judah, Queen Adaliah did her best to wipe out the royal line of David. She tried to kill, I think, some 70 sons that were descended from the king. And if it had not been for Jehoiada the priest who hid one of those sons and kept him in the temple for several years, the royal line would have been wiped out. So that was just standard operating procedure. When your family took the throne from another family, first item, round up all the remaining males of that kingly line. And cut their heads off. You see, that's tended to cut down on rival claims to the throne. (laughs) It seemed to sort of end the question once and for all about which family is going to reign. So I suspect that 
David's servants might seriously have questioned their king's intentions and said, well, he may be asking this question and feigning that he will do them kindness simply to get them out of hiding. And then when he does, he'll take care of them. And so one of the servants of Saul, now this is a servant of Saul, his name is Ziba, but he apparently was what we would call a steward. He himself has uh, many sons and has several, I think he has 15 sons, some 20 servants that are his own. So in other words, he was not, we generally think of slaves as the, the cotton picker out in the cotton field. This man was a slave, a servant of Saul, but he was a man of great standing. He obviously ran at least part of the business enterprises of King Saul. He had men that were servants to himself. And this man, Ziba, says, oh yes, David, there is one letter. There is that lame son of Jonathan's, Mephibosheth. And I know where he is. He's up in Lodabar, in the house of Maker. I can take you right to him. Well, about 15 years, more than likely, have gone by since the day that Mephibosheth fell and became lame. More than likely, he is about 20 years of age at this point in time. Don't you know? that he had lived his life in utter dread of David. First of all, David was his rival. I mean, Mephibosheth, you know, sometimes when we're in a... And and Daryl's not here this morning. I'm going to say this about Daryl. Sometimes when we have a handicap, Daryl has lost his sight since he was a young man in his early 20s is when the Lord took away his sight. And you think about having to deal with something like that, um, how depressed it would be easy to become. And that's one of the things that has amazed me about the grace. God saved his soul, first of all, and God gave Daryl a wonderful spirit and a wonderful heart. You'll never get a word of feel sorry for me and look what I've lost. And then God gave him a wife. What an amazing thing God has done for Daryl. But you know as well as I do that had that happened to you or me, and I'm sure Daryl has had his battles. There, by the way, in Denver today, visiting his wife's relatives. But had that happened to you or me, that it would be easy for us to sit there in the dark in our room and have our little pity party and be angry. Angry at God. Angry at David. I mean, after all, Mephibosheth was the oldest son, apparently, of Jonathan, as Jonathan was the oldest son of Saul. In other words, if things had gone like Mephibosheth figured they should have, Saul would have given the rule and reign over to Jonathan, and Jonathan would have given it to Mephibosheth. David was sitting on his throne, sitting in his chair. And then secondly, he certainly knows that Again, standard operating procedure is to chop off the head of somebody like him. And here he is, just sitting there. You'll notice that if you check your maps, that Lodabar was about as far away from Jerusalem as you could get and still be in Israel. 
This was not someone who wanted to be real close and buddy-buddy with the king. I'd just as soon be way out here in, in the outskirts. Just maybe David will forget about me. Or maybe he knows that I'm crippled. And he figures that I'm no threat to him. But don't you know that day after day, for some 15 years, he had lived in utter dread of a day when he would hear footsteps coming up the walk. And he'd hear that knock on the door. And there would be the soldiers saying, the king respectfully requests your presence in Jerusalem. And now, living in dread of that moment for 15 years, that day comes. And how helpless you would feel. I mean, you're a sitting duck. You're just there. You can't even run away. There's no escape. Hopeless. Helpless. If this is what the king wants, then there's, I, I'm not like David. I can't flee like he did from Saul. If this is what the king wants to do, I'm helpless to prevent it. And now that day arrives, and the knock comes on the door, and the door opens, and there stands David's servants saying, The king has sent us to fetch you. Notice that's what David said down here in chapter 9. In verse 5, then King David sent and fetched him. It's an old southern expression. Do you all say fetch up in Illinois? Not if you're sane at the moment. You don't say, well, we down here in the south, you know, I believe I'll go fetch me some vittles. You know, we say things like that. But it's a good old English expression. I trust that you know, and for the sake of our northern friends and brother and sisters here today, I'll explain that to fetch something means to go get it. Go fetch this. And they go get it, and they bring it. David has sent them to fetch Mephibosheth said, well, well that's just as well. I, I believe I'll decline the invitation. And they would have said, son, you don't understand. <laughs> the king is not inviting. The king is calling. You don't have the option to decline the invitation. We have been sent to take you. You can either come one of two ways, willingly or unwillingly, but you go into Jerusalem. Because when the king invites, and this is not only true of that day, but even of more modern days. Go back just a few hundred years ago to the reign of the kings in England when the king called. You didn't decline. You didn't say, well, I'd like to, but I've got something else I need to do that day. You went. It was not an option. So he is taken to Jerusalem. He is taken before King David. He is placed on the floor down there before David's throne. And he trembling falls on his face and he begins to do obeisance to David. At any moment, no doubt, he expects to hear the words, away with him. Off with his head. But David now begins to speak. And what he speaks is certainly not what Mephibosheth has expected to hear. 
You see, while Mephibosheth has been busy having hard, bitter thoughts towards David, David has been having other kinds of thoughts towards Mephibosheth. David begins to speak, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, Behold thy servant. Here I am. I'm in your hands. Do with me as you please. Behold your servant. David says, Fear not. Fear not. Oh, one of these days I'm going to do a study of how many times those words appear. Certainly you're no stranger to the fact that they appear so many times in the ministry of our Lord. Oftentimes, even the angels that appeared announcing His birth and the shepherds quaking at the sight, fear not. And our Lord coming walking on the water, fear not. And hear from the words from the mouth of David, those same words, fear not. He says, Mephibosheth, all the land that pertained to Saul and to Jonathan. Now, that's a lot of land. He was the king. The king typically had the greatest land holdings in the kingdom. All the land that pertained to Saul and to Jonathan, and no doubt that land had probably fallen into someone else's hands by this time. Someone else perhaps had seized it or bought it or whatever. But all that land, Mephibosheth, I'm giving it to you. The family farm will be your. That's hard to work a farm if you can't walk. So David says, and Ziba, that servant of Saul with his some 15 sons and his 20 servants, I'm giving him to you to be your servants. He and his sons will go out there and work that field for you. And he says in Mephibosheth, you're going to come and you're going to live right here in Jerusalem. And every day you're going to come and eat at my table just like one of my own sons. In other words, I'm going to adopt you. <laughs> You'll be like family. And Mephibosheth, in these words, I tell you every time I read them, oh, they speak to my heart. Who am I? What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? How, how much worth is a dead dog to you? I dodged. A dead dog laying in the middle of the highway on my way up here this morning. It's just a dead dog. And Fisher said, that's what I am. Why? Why would you do such a thing for a dead dog? Powerless, impotent, helpless, worthless. 
And the amazing part of all of this is Mephibosheth almost verbatim echoes the very words that David himself had uttered just a little earlier when God, through the prophet, spoke to him and said, David, I'm going to establish your throne. I will make your kingdom an everlasting kingdom. A man of your seed will sit and reign on your throne forever and ever and ever. The very messianic promise of the kingship of the coming Messiah, the son of David. And David, you remember, goes inside that tent we talked about last week that he erected in Jerusalem and he sat before the Lord and then he began to open his mouth and said, Who am I? And what is my father's house that thou hast dealt so with me? Why? Why me? Who am I? My friend, that is the universal exclamation of the recipients of the free grace of God Almighty. That's what their cry is. I don't understand it. I'm nothing. I'm not fit. I'm not worth anything. I'm a dead dog. Who am I? Why? Why? And the Scriptures simply give us but one answer. Because He wants to. Uh, A similar reason that David is doing this. Because of covenant mercies. Out of respect to the covenant. The covenant in this case that he had made with Jonathan, Jonathan, that promise out there in the woods that day. But in our case, that covenant, sometimes we call it the covenant of grace, whereby God has ordained what he is going to do in his grace and in his mercy. Now, do you not see in the case of Mephibosheth, An illustration of exactly the situation of a lost man. There was once upon a time, you know, that's how fairy tales began. There was once upon a time, you and I, I don't care who you are this day, you and I were in exactly the same sense spiritually as Mephibosheth was in physically. First of all, we were estranged. From God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Separated. Alienated. Paul uses the term in Ephesians, you Gentiles, you once were far off. (laughs) And that's about where we wanted to be. If you're honest, you know your own heart. You know that once you had no desire to draw nigh to God. Or perhaps you wanted the good things that God might give you, but the last thing you wanted was to draw nigh into the very presence of God. Just let me be far off. And secondly, I think that you would admit as you look back on that life, that you too, like Mephibosheth, had hard thoughts about your king. You remember the story, the parable of the talents in the New Testament over in Matthew 25 is one account where a certain amount of money is given to one servant, another ten talents, five, and then one servant is given one talent. And you remember that servant goes and buries the talent. Now keep in mind, a talent was not like singing or dancing. Uh, This is the amount of money 
the master is giving into the hands of his servants. And again, this is not like the servant that's picking cotton out in the field. This is a steward. He's giving him control of some of his assets with the understanding that the servant is going to go and make him some money. And indeed, he comes back, and you recall that the one servant, he, well, he's gained ten more. One of them's gained five, five, he gains five more. And then there's that one servant that went out there and buried his in the ground. And you ask him, why? And he says, because I knew that you were a hard man. <laughs> Reaping where you haven't sown. Gathering where you haven't strawed. I knew that you're unreasonable. You have too high expectations. Cast him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice Jude. Little book of Jude. Don't preach much out of Jude. Not a very long, long book. But there's an interesting thing here, speaking of the judgment of God. Jude, right before the book of Revelation, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, these false teachers, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. Isn't that Ungodly keeps popping up there. You know, he's going to convict all those ungodly ones of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the state of heart of a lost man. He has this view of God. He's hard, unreasonable. Don't want to deal with him. You were there once. You just wanted God to leave you alone. Get out of my life. Let me do my own thing. And then no doubt we, like Mephibosheth, lived in dread of God. In fear of that day, if it's going to be true what the Bible says, that we're going to have to stand and give an account. If the knock's going to come one of these days, when a day of reckoning is upon us, we lived in fear of that day as He. And furthermore, you and I were lame. Like Mephibosheth. I mean by that we were in a state of inability. Not only wouldn't Mephibosheth approach David, Mephibosheth couldn't approach David. We too were in that state of inability. We're lame. You say, how did it happen? In a fall. The fall of Adam, our first parent. One of the old theologians said, Adam, when he fell, fell right on his chooser and broke it. And it hadn't worked right since. That's our problem. We were hurt in a fall. And we still bear the evidences of that lameness. No, it's not a natural lameness. It's not a natural inability. We've got the use of our faculties and of our legs and of our arms. The inability is not in our legs. It's in our head. It's in our hearts. It shows itself in that we see no beauty 
in the Son of God, as Barry set forth for us earlier this morning, men could take the just one, the Lamb of God, the Holy One of God, and nail Him to a cross. The prophet Isaiah said, we, we saw Him, but we saw no beauty in Him. We esteemed Him not. That is, we did not value Him. When we estimate His worth, it's about 30 pieces of silver. It's about what He's worth. We have no taste. I, I don't have a taste for chocolate. Everybody thinks that's awfully strange. I think it's very reasonable myself. I can eat it. I can will. I can choose to eat it. I just can't will and choose to like it. I'm unable to make myself delight in chocolate. I cannot will my taste buds to change. And neither can a sinner who can will himself to go to the gospel feast. He just can't will himself to like it. He can come and sit with us as we feed and feast upon the Word of God and the good things of the Gospel. He may come because you've dragged Him here this morning. He may come out of a sense of obligation, but He cannot will Himself to like it. His heart is not hungry for this. He looks around at people in this room saying, Hey, what's wrong with y'all? Life is out yonder. Life is as far away from this place as you can get. Happiness is, is how little of this we can get by with. Not how much. He loves darkness rather than light. He loves lies rather than truth. Oh, there is this awful inability. Oh, it's not natural. Nothing wrong with his thinking otherwise. Nothing wrong with his choosing. He chooses things every day of the week. It's just when it comes to God that he's got this problem. It's a spiritual inability. But oh my friend, when I say that, it is as real as if he had no legs. As if he had no hands. As if he was deaf and dumb. As if he were blind. It is as real, it is pervasive as if he had no faculties at all. He is dead towards God. But then something happened. Something happened one day. That's the way we used to be. And I trust that in many of your lives that's not the description of your life today. I like what Barry said. Man, I'm ready to worship the Lord. There was a time, Barry, that would have been far from your lips. But it's not your description today. And you say, well, what happened? Well, you see, one day there was this knock. And I was fetched. <laughs> the king called. The king sent his messengers. And I was fetched. John Andre, the major in the British Army that was Benedict Arnold's contact man, and as he was hanged, had in his pocket that wondrous poem, said these words, enwrapped in thick 
Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light. Madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, Almighty love, arrest that man. <laughs> I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. I trust that you, if you know God this day and have come to faith in Christ, you can look back on such a day when unbeknownst to you, something happened. What it was, oh, from your perspective, you might describe it like the prodigal son, where it says simply, he came to himself. All you know is, one day I got up and I wasn't thinking like I thought the day before. Something was different. Home, the father's house, used to be a place I wanted to get away from. Getting that far off country, that's where happiness in life is. And now one day I found myself, I looked around and I was slopping pigs. And I said, this is nuts. This is crazy. I'm going home. What happened? I don't know. I just came to. I'll tell you what happened. There was a Savior out there seeking a lost sheep laid him on his shoulders and brought him back to the fold. My friend, there was a time when we just wanted a way. But now God has spoken. And light floods our soul. Why, we've sat under the light. Some of you perhaps have sat under the light for as long as you can remember. You hear the gospel every Lord's Day. And it never permeated, never penetrated the dark regions of your heart. But now God has spoken, says Paul. And the light shines in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, I see something in Jesus. It used to repulse me, and now it attracts me. Used to, I would... Knock down anybody in my way to get away from God. And now I will surmount any obstacle. I'll climb any mountain, cross any river, whatever it takes to get to Christ. Why? All I know is I'm thirsty. Thirsty. Thirsty for what? Here's a bud. Thirsty for life. Well, then why go to Him? Because He alone has the words of life. Where else? Where else are we going to go? What other alternative? Where else is life but in the Prince of Life? Oh my, this is the glory of what we call the Gospel. This is what ought to float our boats, folks. <laughs> that the Gospel is not just an invitation. Oh, it is that. It is not just an invitation that comes in the mail that has down there at the bottom, RSVP. Now, you ought to respond. But just a deal, an offer that God throws out on the table and passively sits there wringing His hands, hoping that you or I will accept it. But the grace of God that saves our soul is fetching Grace. The shepherd 
is not just one who stands at the door of the fold and cries out like little Bo Peep, leave them alone and they'll come home, but that he surmounts any obstacle to find that lost sheep. And then when he finds him, lays him on his shoulder and then brings him back to the fold. Is that not what Christ said of those lost sheep? Oh, I have others, he says, that are not of this fold, and them also must I bring. They're not coming. Is that going to make the difference? No, I'll bring them. He's not just a seeker, a searcher, a finder. He's a bringer. I'm going to bring them. Well, what's the effect of all of this? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The effect, the fruit of these considerations ought to cause your heart to bubble up and overflow. It ought to cause you to say what Paul said in Philippians 3. I want to know Him. I want to know this person. I want to know this God who would fetch a worthless, no-count rebel and bring him to his table and adopt him as his I want to know that God. I want to know that Christ. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be made conformable to his death. I want to live and I want to die like Jesus. If by any means I might apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. Listen to that language. You've been what? Apprehended. We use that word speaking of the law. Apprehending the criminal, the felon. Well, my friend, how else, how better to put what happened to Paul on the Damascus Road when he's breathing out threatenings and slaughterings against the church of Christ? When if you were to ask him, but Paul, don't you love Christ? Oh, love him, I hate him, I despise him. I only wish I were there when they nailed him to that cross. I would have loved to have crowned him with those thorns. And on his way, he was arrested. Fetched. Brought. Grace then becomes the wonder of our soul, the theme of our song, the seasoning of our speech, the motivation of our godly life. It's all founded on that grace. Now, let me close this morning by saying, I suppose some of you maybe sitting here and saying, well, if that's the case, then I'll just sit here and wait for God to arrest me. I'll just sit here in my little chair in the dark in the corner, and my little pity party, and I'll just wait for God to come fetch me. I know of no better way to go to hell. You see, God does not fetch us physically. He doesn't grab a hold of our foot and drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of his dear son. I assure you, with that attitude, you will perish in your sins. 
The king has already come calling. He has given a call. All men everywhere, repent. Turn. Believe. The call has come. You say, well, but wait a minute. I'm not fit to come. Well, let's talk about that. What qualification do you need to come? Are you a sinner? Is that what you're saying? That you're not fit because you're morally disqualified because of your sin? Well, I say, well, hallelujah. Because that's who he calls. Sinners. I'm not come to call the righteous. I'm come to call the sinners to repentance. You fit. You've got the qualification if you see yourself a sinner. Well, you say, well, well, what preparation do I need? What do I need to bring with me? The old hymn writer put it best. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Do you feel you need Christ? Then you can come. What price must I bring? Well, we sang just a moment ago, nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, said the prophet, come to the waters and drink. You that have no money, oh, don't let that keep you off. It's free. Come. Will you have life? Are you thirsty for life? Then you may have life in the hands of the Son of God. Come to Him. And if you don't, don't let me hear you blame God's election, God's predestination, God's foreknowledge, God's purposes. You ought to be thanking God that He didn't elect you. You don't want it. You won't have it. It's offered, but you turn up your nose at it. You ought to be praising God every day that He did not elect you. No, that's not what bars you from the feast, from the table, from the water. It is that old stubborn heart of rebellion, wanting your own way rather than to submit to the rightful rule of your king. Wanting to say, like Elvis and Frank, I did it my way. Rather than bowing down and receiving life as a free gift from the hand of a Savior who bled and died to purchase it on a cross. That's why. Don't think one day you'll stand before God in heaven and say, God, you're sending me to hell. And you know why? It's all your fault. You wouldn't elect me. Listen to his words. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever believeth on me hath everlasting life. If any man come, I'll not cast him out. There's your warrant. There's your invitation. Do you want it? Then go. Flee to the throne of life and grace where Christ reigns. Flee. Cry out to Him. Plead with Him that He would have mercy on you, that He forgive your sins and bestow life. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this wonderful illustration we find in your word of what you've done in the case of Mephibosheth. And Father, what thrills our heart is that it is so symbolic, so illustrative of our own case. When we were nothing, when we were outcasts, when we were rebels, fit only for destruction. Children of wrath, even as others, you sought us, you bought us, and you brought us. And so, Father, for the rest of our lives here on earth and for endless ages in eternity, we shall be to the praise of the glory of your grace. Fit us for that now, Father. Oh, may we have forgotten what little thing it might have been that disturbed us when we came here this morning. May we be lost in wonder and awe and praise at what you've done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.